Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, a podcast where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. The interesting thing about intersections is that we all face many every day, and the way we navigate those determines the trajectory of our days and our lives. I'm Doc Philip Brown with my good friend Terry Jackson, and we are so excited today to have a special guest, Dr. Umbreen Nahal. Umbreen, I would love for you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself with a takeaway of if there were three, maybe three things the audience should know about you before we get started, what would they be? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and I love, I love the intro um, about how you can control the trajectory of your day as well as your life. It's, it's great. Um, I describe myself as a human ping pong ball. So when people ask me about, you know, home or actually even on, honestly, if they ask me about, you know, what's your name? I'm just like, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, in that actually my name typically would be spelled A-M-B-R-E-E-N, but my mother spelled it a bit differently. Mm. So even that becomes a conversation point. Um, but so I've, I've lived in multiple countries. I was born in the U.S. to immigrant parents from Pakistan. Um, although if you trace our history, we're, we're mutts. You know, so I'm, I'm a mutt and I'm a ping pong ball um, and, you know, lived in, um, went to medical school in Pakistan, actually, despite uh, having, you know, started college in the U.S. and lived in Saudi Arabia, where my dad had a job with an oil company and traveled in Europe. So I, I like to, but I think what that's allowed me to do is, you know, we hear a lot about empathy, but uh, I'm a bit of a critic of empathy along the lines of Paul Bloom from Yale, uh, a professor who says that, you know, maybe we should have more rational compassion. Hmm. So maybe that's the second thing I would say about me is I like to be both compassionate and rational. And I think there's an in innate tension sometimes between the heart and the head. And we need to find that again, intersection between those two. And the third thing is I like to snowshoe. <laughs> I think it's there's a funny uh, Winnie the Pooh, I think, quote that like when you see somebody putting on their boots, you know, they're going on an adventure. And when I put on my snowshoes, um, even if I'm just going down a pretty sedate path in a in a in a park, it feels like you're going on an adventure. <laughs> that is just that is brilliant. I'm glad to know that about you. Uh, it, it really uh, just un underscores because you and I spent a, a little bit of time together recently online, mm -hmm. uh, and that's another thing I didn't know. So it's fantastic to <laughs> to enrich those relationships. Today we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, workplace diversity makes it possible to deliver equitable care, but but really coming at it from a different angle, which was your idea, uh, mm -hmm. and and I think is a very powerful one and. And so just talking about the whole concept of intersectionality, and I think maybe a good place to start for our audience might be to define that a little bit for mm -hmm. them. Absolutely. So I think there's the aspects of identity that are visual, right? So somebody can look at me and say that I appear to be female. I appear to be, some people can right away tell that I'm South Asian. Some people can be like, she's something, she's something. She, she could maybe be white, but not really, right? And there is a concept of like being white passing or white adjacent. So, um, but then there's so many other dimensions. We're essentially, um, even in terms of when I, when I coach people on communication, 
Uh, this is something I've been learning because you've probably already noticed I like to use a lot of words. And um, we are essentially like diamonds, right? And we have multiple facets. And when you look at a diamond, you see its brilliance, but you can't appreciate every individual facet. Mm. So as humans, there are many, many, and if you were to try to actually see all of the facets cut into a diamond, it would take too long and it's, it's impossible. And you would probably feel like you kind of go a little crazy and I don't mean to be ableist, but it would just make your brain unhappy, right? So um, when you communicate, you have to choose, just like you said, you know, get, tell me three things about yourself. You have to choose what parts you present. And there's a book, even though it's a little pejorative in the title, like Surrounded by Idiots, that implies that when you try to communicate with somebody and they don't get it, you're just like, what's wrong with them? In fact, it's not that they're an idiot or there's anything wrong with them. Again, not to be pejorative, but that's the book's title. Um, it's rather that you may be choosing to display a facet that they're not really ready to receive, or they don't have the bandwidth to receive, or they don't have the lived experience to understand. Mm. And to the, lived, the lived experience part of it is what's important with intersectionality, because there are facets of you, there are domains of your uh, personality that may not be obvious. So when you look at me, you wouldn't automatically know that I have endometriosis, which is something that affects one in 10 women. Mm -hmm. And most people have probably walked into a room and not realized that one in 10 women at least has endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And that affects your, your life. It affects many things. There are things that you do have control over, like you said about the trajectory of your day and your life, and there are things you don't have control over. So though, like, that's an example that while, you know, on the surface, I'm a physician, my background tells you that I'm at MIT. Um, you can, you know, see that I appear to be female and South Asian. You, there's all these other aspects of me that you may not know. That I have probably a different brain. I, I don't test positive for any particular this or that when I've been neurocognitive tested, just out of curiosity. Um, but I, I have a different brain. And so like, I like to say that I'm, so as a scientist, we talk, talk about statistics and like two standard deviations from the mean is you cross the line into abnormal. So I like to think that I'm uh, 1.8 standard deviations from the mean <laughs> and I'm an outlier, like, um, mm -hmm. Malcolm um, Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I so I'm an outlier. That's interesting because. You've said a great deal from the very beginning of the introduction of yourself in the three points, right? And so mm. I heard um, empathy, and I remember reading a book, Compassionomics. Mm. And in Compassionomics, I think he talked about um, uh, compassion is empathy in motion, right? Mm. And then I heard Pakistan, which I've had the pleasure of visiting uh, and wow. actually doing some leadership uh, training in Pakistan through the U.S. Embassy. Um, and I heard oil company, which I worked for, mobile oil in the past. Um, but I think this whole piece of what you just described was the iceberg, right? The iceberg of maybe there's 15% of the iceberg above the water with 85% below the water. When we deal with, um, when we see people and they come in the room, that's why we like to get to the root of being human. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be human? And and I guess I'll ask that question of you. Uh, we were talking about intersectionality, intersectionality because 
even at every intersection, what we're dealing with is a human being. Correct. Right. So what does it what is what does it mean to you to be to be human? Hmm. That's a good question. Very philosophic. Um you know, I will say I I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. I because I think that there's I will also say just to touch upon some less butterfly unicorn type of stuff <laughs> is um I've, I've worked in the pediatric emergency room. Mm -hmm. So I've also seen the underbelly of humanity, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, I think we are deeply flawed. And I think we aspire to be, uh, to be more than that. And I think there is, well, so, so my faith background is, is I'm Muslim, mm -hmm, I'm Islam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know the word jihad is negative, has a negative connotation in how some people misinterpret it, mm -hmm. including Muslim people. Um, but there's a concept of a daily jihad, mm -hmm. which to me actually maps to the introduction of this uh, that we started with, that you have choices. Every moment, every, every day you have choices. And the jihad is just, just a struggle it is there's a concept of the nafs or your um, desire right and then you know or even like if you look at psychology there's your the part of your brain that controls your breathing that you don't you can't control if you try to stop breathing your body will take control be like you got to breathe right then there's your limbic system which controls um anger and you know your more another kind of desires and whatnot Right. And that is essential for your survival as an individual. So for fight or flight or survival of the species. So like sexual desire. And then there's your cognition, which is your higher brain. Right. And those are kind of in, in struggle and they're in balance. And so to me, jihad is sort of like. Do I have the piece of chocolate? Do I have the struggle? Yes, yes. <laughs> if it's dark chocolate, is it okay? Because it's good for you. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And, yes. and now is my, is my cognition kind of like coming to play with my desire, being like constructing a narrative that makes me feel good about myself? Mm -hmm. Or am I holding myself accountable to a higher standard? Right. So um, I, I think that so maybe that's the answer to being human. Being mm. human, hopefully, is to aspire to something greater than what you are mm. and to hopefully we have the strength of character to understand that we're flawed. And to not um, perceive that as weakness, but rather an opportunity to improve. That's right. So you said something earlier that really struck a chord with me as a as a surgeon, because you talked about this uh, you talked about this compassionate rationalism, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to explore that that thought process a little bit more because it truly resonates with me as a surgeon because so many of the times that's exactly the space you find yourself in with patient care. A hundred percent. And in fact, actually, so as you, as you know, Doc Brown, I'm actually three months out from having had a surgery myself for endometriosis and fibroids, mm. which is um, mm. very common. And um, this, again, I think is another intersectionality issue that while my appearance and where I've gone to school and the way I speak tends to kind of place me more what we call white adjacent, 
my, the issues that I have, like for instance, fibroids um, is something that affects a lot of black women. And, you know, now that I've at midlife experienced things that affects, you know, more black women, um, and this is where empathy needs to be, a, a, also have a rationality to it. Because now that my own lived experience matches more that of a classic woman of color or black woman, and I had to have a conversation with surgeons about, do I have a hysterectomy? And by the way, a hysterectomy affects one in three women in the United States. Mm. If this were affecting, you know, I'm, maybe this will be seen political and, and the way I'm saying it, but I have to ask, if this were affecting one in three white men, would we be amputating body parts? Mm. Right? So is do you have to have the lived experience in order to have the compassion. But I, I I don't think so, actually, because I would say, so to your point about as a surgeon, I feel like I got, and I, I the, the woman who did my surgery was excellent, and I trusted her with my body and, and my health. That said, I will say that some of the best advice I've gotten are from white male surgeons on something that is typically a woman of color disease. And I feel like sometimes they are able to step back and not feel your feels with you in a way that allows them to have full access to their cognition without their limbic system or what's called the lizard brain or your threat center activated. So I actually push back on those women who perceive that you can only go to a female doctor or a female provider or you know, you have to share my experience before you can deliver good care to me. Because I do believe that you can be committed to problem solving and a good result. Perhaps if you are not experiencing the same trauma of being a woman in the healthcare system, perhaps you have more energy and problem solving ability to focus on getting to the solution. And that could be, for instance, the, you know, equipoise or the um, a little bit of clinical distance, you know, so now we talk so much about empathy. But again, Paul Bloom actually points out that if you're feeling the feels with the patient, you might actually be too much in a tra space of trauma or too much of a space of emotion to activate the full uh, ability of your data driven cognition to really think about all the options. Um, you know, so I, I do find like, for instance, some women surgeons, and I, this is not a criticism, this is merely an observation, themselves are so traumatized by what it is to have a uterus, first menstruation, then fibroids, then surgery, it's a lot of trauma. They're just like, oh my God, get it out. <laughs> just be done with it. <laughs> Right. But then I think about it. I'm just like, well, let's just think logically for a second. When you if I have either of you ever installed a big TV or a wall unit or anything in your yeah. house. Yes. Yes. What, you, didn't you have to secure it really well? Right. So it doesn't fall on somebody. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like, what is the purpose of a uterus? Granted, I have not used my uterus for biologic purposes. Um, but I, it's, it can hold up to a 14 pound fetus, right? Maybe even more. I mean, most fetuses are not that big, but you know, they can get that big. Now think about the body has to secure that organ with a lot of ligaments. 
that body has to provide, um, your body has to provide a lot of blood supply to grow an entire another human in there and has nerves to contract, right? Now you're gonna cut all of that when you amputate that organ and you're gonna tell me it has no long-term effects on my health, no long-term effects on my pelvic floor function, right? And so this is where, um, I actually find that, you know, when we talk about equity and diversity in um, healthcare, and we talk about increasing, you know, women or minorities in healthcare, is it possible that because of how much we put onto these individuals that you are the solution to these systemic problems? It's all you, go be a hero right? Is that really realistic? And are we putting undue pressure on these? Like, it reminds me of that um, scene from Wonder Woman and the no man's land scene where they're in the trenches. And, um, and the guys are just like, we can't stop for everybody. We've got to move on. Right. And she's like, No, I won't tolerate that. And she like climbs out of the um, trenches. And she just personally by herself goes on to the battlefield and she's like deflecting bullets one by one with her, by the way, magical cuffs, which I don't have. <laughs> you know, by the way, with her shield given to her by her father, Zeus, who's a god. And my dad is excellent, but he's not a god, by the way. And you're going to tell me, hey, I'm, hey, Dr. Nahal, I'm Breen. Go on to the battlefield by yourself because you're a strong woman of color. You can do it. You don't got no shield or cuffs, but you can do it, right? <laughs> um, and then what does that do to me psychologically when you're telling, society is telling me like, you're strong, you're smart, you can do it by yourself. Go save all the women of color out there. It, am I actually then, what, however you've pumped me up while not providing me with the actual needed resources, am I gonna deliver excellent care? Or actually is a white male surgeon who, when he says, do this, it gets done, who is senior, and you, you know this, Doc Brown, you're a surgeon, who's maybe the most senior in the hospital, therefore gets, has the most access to OR time. And, well, I maybe get the safest care with him. He's not personally feeling my feels. And he has access to the resources to get me, you know, if I have an emergent something, something, he's got, he's got the OR time, he gets it done, right? And this is not a popular opinion, but this is a reality. And the reason I'm stating it is because it's not that I'm not as good as you, Doc Brown. I think I'm at least as good as you. Um, but I also know that I'm human. I also know that I'm flawed. And I'm, if I'm really tired, it's possible I could make an error. And I should be aware of that. And to expect me to be a hero and not provide me the resources and for me to provide for all women of color is not fair, is not realistic, it's not safe. And I think that's where the rational compassion also comes in, right? Where you have to be able to say, so I could out of ego be like, I want to be the hero. Yes, that's me, right? But if you have more a rational approach, you'd say, okay, but what is the system that surrounds me? What are the resources that I have? What are the outcomes I'm expected to deliver? And if those outcomes are not perfect, I don't take it personally like, oh my gosh, you're saying that I as a female surgeon am not good enough. No, no. okay. 
actually, as it turns out, female surgeons have excellent outcomes, sometimes, you know, better, but um, we need to be able to remove ourselves. And that's where empathy gets dangerous, right? Because even if you think about like empathy, like walk in somebody else's shoes, when you like grammatically, when you say walk in somebody's shoes, you're, you're, the I is silent. The subject of that sentence is I walk in somebody's shoes. I feel your feels. The subject of that sentence is me, not you. So empathy centers actually on me and my feelings. And if I don't have a matching experience to yours and I can't believe what you, that that's where the not believing comes in. And so I do though believe that we can train people, including white male surgeons, to deliver excellent care to women of color if we don't center on the shared experience part, but saying, look, um, just like I'm flawed as a human being, we as flawed human beings create flawed science. Plus, if you're a real scientist, you understand that knowledge is infinite and we are finite. If you subtract inf uh, you know, something finite from infinity, you end up with infinity. There is an infinite amount of information we do not know. So as a scientist, you go into any situation saying, I only have a fraction of information and so I shouldn't rely only on me and my knowledge. I shouldn't bring hubris into the OR. I shouldn't bring hubris into the exam room, right? I shouldn't bring hubris into clinical trials. Um, and you know, I've kind of you know, gone on for quite a bit, so I'll pause. You, <laughs> there's a whole lot that you said there, right? We're talking about something that is systemic. And in order to change that, then you're really talking about transformation and the examination of mental models. That's what mm -hmm. you're really talking about, right? So the challenge is, <laughs> how do we begin to um, brick by brick deconstruct and reconstruct mental models that makes us see each other more human and understand mm -hmm. that we are at these intersections daily. Mm -hmm. And as we are at the intersection, we may need to pause and say, this is a human being that I'm actually dealing with. How do, how do we reconstruct uh, that type of narrative and reality or perceived reality such that we can treat patients better? So I'm a pediatrician. So um, there's really there's a, some really funny videos by Dr. Glaucon Flecken, I think he is right. It may not be pronouncing it. He makes some really funny videos about different specialties. Um, but there's a really funny one where the pediatrician goes to psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is like, "You need to spend more time around adults." And the pediatrician is like, "Why?" <laughs> so, so, um, and now that I'm in business school, I sometimes get feedback being like, she should have learned this already, right? Like, I, I think I haven't, pediatricians basically are Peter Pans in some ways, and we don't want to grow up <laughs> and deal with annoying adults. You two are pretty okay, though. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank well, you, thank appreciate you. that. You know, I was, I was fascinated by a lot of the discussion around the whole uh, 
topic before with, you know, the surgeon and all that that meant, the systemic issues. And it's interesting, you know, I I had the opportunity to understand a little bit about the whole concept of uh, endometriosis and hysterectomy. My wife went through that about, Mm -hmm. gosh, seven, I mean, endometriosis, long time. But the hysterectomy part, I guess it's been almost uh, six and a half, seven years now. So that put me in a different space of understanding, you know, Mm -hmm. like not the surgeon space, but the family space. Mm. And it's such a different, it's such a different thing. And one of the things I've always kind of tried to highlight as a paradox is, you know, the, the physician is the authority on the medical condition, on the diagnosis, on the treatment possibilities but the patient has authority in terms of decision rights of what's right for them and how that process of co-creation comes together between mm-hmm. patient and and physician is so important to getting the right treatment right the patient has to be informed adequately which is challenged at best because so frequently you know unlike in your case where you know you own the medical language because you are a physician. So that's mm-hmm. different conversations. A lot of times with patients, you know, there's a language barrier there yeah. just in, you know, medical versus whatever their native language is. So expand a little bit on that whole idea of, of what that intersection looks like and mm-hmm. how it gets successfully navigated to a good treatment plan. Absolutely. So first, I think I, I actually didn't finish answering the other question. The, the quick answer to how do you deconstruct it is to have the, the beginner's mind or the child mind, right? And to have that growth mindset. And I think that a lot of the challenges that come into play when we get is coming from being too, too um, stiff and too adult, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> right. And yes. Um, having this built up ego and not wanting to acknowledge that you've done anything wrong. And it's a perception. It's a very moralistic attitude of right versus wrong, as opposed to believing we're all inherently flawed. There is an infinite amount of knowledge that we can never know that, it, you know, expands throughout the universe. And so we need to approach things with curiosity and humility mm-hmm. and um, to be under. And so whenever somebody corrects you, it's not a correction, it's just learning. And and I will say, having been in the diversity spaces, there are times when somebody of a margin, more marginalized identity than mine will say, no, I'm correcting you. And um, I, 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 I you can feel it, right? There's a like, you are wrong and I want you to understand you're wrong. And that can be hard. And I'm not saying that it's been easy to take that, but I understand that it is coming. I under, I try to have empathy there and have understanding for the place where it's coming from, right? That this is a person who has been denied authority. And I am a physician. I have um, MIT and Harvard attached to me and in from Pakistan, a, a similar, you know, institution, Khan. So there's somebody may have a need to show to the world, I as a regular human being have the authority over this seemingly authority to correct her and tell her she is wrong. And that that I need to be able to accept that, right? Um, and, and I so 
so to somebody and you know to be corrected in public by quote non-authority they might find that humility humiliating they might find that demeaning but why is it demeaning right all it means is that there may genuinely be a learning need for me and i need to humbly accept it and thank the person for identifying an opportunity for me to learn right and then to your point, Doc Brown, about sort of, you know, so, I, and I think the last time we talked about this, I had a similar tweak on on how you described it, which is that I think in a, even though we as physicians get a little frustrated with Doc Google, and um, we're probably going to end up with Doc, uh, Doc Chat GPT pretty soon. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, if not already, uh, reality is that there's such a vastness to the advance of science, and we are busy trying to get our charts written. You know, in EHR, which adds three hours to our day, we're trying to, you know, actually talk to patients now, right, and spend time with them and answering messages via the EHR that are, you know, outside of the visit, that it is frankly impossible for any, no matter how smart or how dedicated or how many honors they got in med school, any doctor or nurse or anybody to keep up with all of the literature. So I do think that we as clinicians have to remember that the patient is obsessed with their disease because they're living it every day. And they may genuinely have more knowledge than we do sometimes, right? So I, for instance, educated my surgeons, albeit I'm a physician myself and I, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, I educated my surgeons that, by the way, did you know that there's a link between migraines and endometriosis? It's an emerging um, area that I only found out via Twitter, actually, because I was following a researcher who's in the weeds of this advancing edge of science right so so i think that is um, and that you know goes that also gets to the fact that there's a systemic aspect to these diseases that seem to be localized you know more recently i've been learning about psoriasis same thing it's seen as a skin disease in fact it actually affects we know it affects joints or psoriatic arthritis but there's again emerging evidence around it affecting hearts right? Like there's inflammatory markers around hearts or something. I'm just learning. I, I'm going to say it wrong. I don't know exactly what it is. I'm learning about it. But um, that's where the patient does have authority over their body and their choices, but they are also having a lived experience of something that where maybe science has not yet investigated. Right, and there's an unfortunately very long history of calling patients crazy, particularly women patients, particularly women of color patients. And that's where, again, I think we always have to walk into any room saying there's a vastness of knowledge. There's an infinite amount of knowledge that I do not have. And as a scientist, I am committed to advancing knowledge and I'm committed to uh, honest, you know, and having equipoise, like not being patched. I mean, you need passion on one hand, but being overly passionate again, sometimes becomes ego. Yeah. Yeah. It's such, you know, you, you hit us on such an important topic, you know, the volume of medical knowledge doubles five to six times per year, right? Mm -hmm. Like every 70 days or something like that. And so none of us, no matter how, intelligent 
no matter how driven we are, has even the remotest hope of being able to keep up. And that's why we really need enough humility to be able to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I kind of put it into a, a three-part thing as I go through. On the one hand, I have nothing to prove, but I also have a lot to learn, and I also have plenty to offer. Mm-hmm. And that thinking in that construct allows space for new information to enter and not be a threat to me. Because it, when you talked exactly. about when you talked about that whole ego thing, one of the things that gets driven at you in in medical training, of course, is that you're supposed to be the expert and have all mm-hmm. the answers, and it's not possible, mm-hmm. you know, for that to really be the case. But that doesn't mean we don't all feel the pressure for it to be true. And to the extent that we can get ourselves, as, as Terry would say, that we can can deconstruct that mental model and come together with a better model that takes us to a, to a more uh, successful place in how we navigate this changing information, it really helps us be better servants to our patients and, and better stewards of our own mental health, for that matter. Exactly. I mean, it, it, whether it's what I was describing before about, you know, being Wonder Woman on the field, which is unrealistic. And yet I feel like, you know, we're con- I feel like women in today's world, like, oh, go forward, go lead. Okay, well, where's my administrative assistant to like, <laughs> help me just stay scheduled, right? right? right. <laughs> um, and, you know, just, I mean, it, it's, this is a reality, right? So it, there's interesting, there's a, um, a book written by um, a couple of women leaders uh, on the world stage, and it's published by MIT Press. One of them is actually a Nigerian woman who pointed out, because in Nigeria, women wear a headdress. And so she um, she actually wears the same thing every day, so that for two reasons. One is that if you look at um, Obama and you look at Zuckerberg, Obama always wore the blue suit, Zuckerberg always wore the gray t-shirt. The more that you simplify, the more uh, fewer decisions you have to make because we know that brains have decision fatigue. So um, we need to be able to outsource more things. And this is not because you're an egotistical doctor or whatever. It is because you want to reserve, you recognize that you're human. We have decision fatigue and you want to reserve the most important decisions for what most affects your patient. Right. So, um, and you know, in in this case of this uh, Nigerian, um, Leader, she also said that unfortunately with women, what you wear becomes a topic of discussion. So she just wears the same kind of thing all the time to remove that from the topic of discussion about her so that it, there could be more focus on her work. Right. And so, and I think as we're, since we're talking about, um, you know, diversity as well, I, I do think that becomes a big issue that we have to talk about, which is hair discrimination for black women. Right. And so um, there was a crown act that was recently passed to allow women to wear natural hair. There's recent, um, you know, there, I mean, so for me, like you, you guys know, I, I hadn't realized this was going live. So I was just like, oh my God, give me a second. I just like brushed my hair and right. I was ready. Right. Whereas some women, in order to be perceived as acceptable by societal standards, which are Eurocentric, spend like three hours and put chemicals in their hair just to straighten it. And then now there's increasing evidence um, coming from the NIH or NIH funded studies that those hair chemi- those straight hair straighteners, those chemicals 
could be causing uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is it that um, society is enforcing on with Eurocentric standards? And I mean, I in that way, whether you want to call it lucky, then so-called I got lucky because my facial features, my hair, my skin color, you know, are again, white adjacent. And these are, this is terminology that I've re- learned more recently. And at first it kind of maybe seemed like awkward to say it, like, what's the big deal? But then when I think about it, that there are girls in school who are being policed out of school for their hair, just because, you know, if you believe in God, the way God or nature caused your hair to grow, which is natural and normal for you, is the reason now you're not going to be in school. And now rather like uh, to me, I love school. It's just like this amazing place, right? But um, if your experience of school as a child was getting policed, there's also evidence that little black boys as young as three in the United States, as well as little Muslim boys in the UK um, get get, uh, suspended, get seen as uh, criminal or dangerous. And again, this is this is not critiquing, maybe it is critiquing culture, but I mean, if you go into, I'm not Christian, but if you go into most churches, you know, baby Jesus is not black, right? <laughs> um, and so, and he's not, and so what are the constant image when you, I mean, now we have more diversity in commercials like the Gerber baby or whatever, but generally speaking, when you think of the angelic, this, that, or whatever, it is probably not a black child. And so these things end up with unintentionally, maybe without any malice, informing how we think of innocence and how we think of purity, right? And so those are images that are in a woman's, like not in a woman or man's mind if he's like a preschool you know, teacher about who's innocent. And so there's a lot of research that's done that shows that and I mean, as a pediatrician, I've definitely seen those like, those like like little men, you know, little black boys who've got these like they they like they formed muscles. I and mean, I'm just like, dude, I want those muscles myself, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, I, like I do not have Michelle Obama arms at all. There's a reason why they're covered. <laughs> I mean, I also don't put in the work. I'll acknowledge it's not just genetics, right? But these are these are all the things that are swirling around us that are what lead to implicit bias that um and i mean there's internalized bias too right so i um make a real effort for my hair to be so-called not frizzy right what is frizzy frizzy is my looking more ethnic right and that's my being like oh my gosh that's going to be unprofessional that's going to distract people from me um, and so I think this is also something that we have to create space for and be tolerant of that, um, you know, while yes, there's some things you can choose, a woman can choose to wear exactly the same thing every day so that her appearance so-called doesn't distract. But there's also times when so-called professionalism wrongly labels the way that God or nature made you to be as quote unprofessional and therefore, you must alter your appearance to fit in to, quote, not distract us. I'm sorry, but that's hogwash. <laughs> you know, what, what does it mean to be human, you asked? What it means to be human is there's not one kind of human being. We come in different colors and shapes and sizes and with different hair or no hair, right? 
Um, and there's a, there's a book that I'm reading, um, Diverse by Design, about, you know, to the point we were talking about earlier about what, how do we need to construct spaces or society or systems? And so, um, you know, to poke a little fun at myself, because I'm, you know, over 40. Now, whenever I go through the airport, I always get flagged and patted down here. And I'm always like, oh, that's just my perimenopausal back fat, I guess. <laughs> um, and of course, I just make them a little uncomfortable. It's not an appropriate thing to say, but you know, why not? I'm over 40. I'm in perimenopause, right? And your, your machine believes that a woman only looks one way, which is, I guess, the way a woman looks under 40, right? So I rambled quite a bit. So, you know, take, <laughs> take that word. <laughs> you described quite a bit of some of my lived experiences mm -hmm. being a, a black male in, in mm -hmm. America. Uh, and Dr. Brown and I have talked about it quite often. Um, but what I'm interested in is really solutions, right? Solutions yeah. to, to um, having more equity in the healthcare space, having, yeah. having more equity as, 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 I think when we look at each other as human beings, that creates, uh, uh, I guess, a, some some equity and equality. At least that's what I think. And I think I heard Dr. Brown say in a conversation he, was, he and I had, and that is that uh, power, justice, what it's poverty equals, uh, was it justice? Yeah, the opposite of poverty, poverty is, is justice. justice. And so how can we get justice and, justice and equity in the healthcare space, uh, in, in your opinion? So um, there's another book that I'm reading called Data Feminism. Okay. Um, and even though it's about feminism, it is about intersectional feminism. And so I think that it has some solutions that I think are important. So one of the things that it talks about is, you know, creating, I think we need to think about, so we're in a data-driven world, yes. right? Whether you like data or don't like data, it is a new currency. So I think that one thing I would say, and I would say coming from a, a, a community myself that is under surveillance and has been harmed, mm -hmm. even though I'm not suggesting that Muslims have always been perfect, but um, there are certain uh, structural and policy and policing mechanisms, which then cause my community, for instance, to be distrustful of government, distrustful of technology, but all that ends up, and, and, and there's also been some colonizers that um, deliberately used education to indoctrinate. Mm -hmm. So there's a distrust sometimes of Western education. But what that does is that can, I mean, this is a, this is a debate, right? Um, but my, my position is that ultimately that keeps you at the margins and you're not engaging with progress. And, um, and, you know, again, from an Islamic perspective, there's sometimes people will talk about innovation and religion as a bad thing because, you, you know, it's, it's set or whatever. Interpretation is certainly allowed. So I, I think that there are people of more traditional backgrounds sometimes can perceive innovation as changing things that are set in stone. But I actually think among scholars, there's... Um, opportunity to consider where as human beings endowed with a brain and with sense and with knowledge we're allowed to make progress hmm. so so i think that that's a framing for you know we as 
those of marginalized communities do need to engage with data. I think, was it Toni Morrison who said that definitions belong to the definers, not the defined? Yes, <laughs> yes. So data is gonna define you. Be one of the definers. Don't be one of the defined, right? So get to that table. If there's tech being made, learn tech. You know, why am I at MIT as a pediatrician, right? A public health pediatrician who basically just kind of wants to sit back and be like, you're growing fine, keep doing it. I'll just take credit. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that because I just made a post on Facebook the other day that says, those who make the definitions rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's, it's interesting that you just, because that is what it is. It, it's really about um, creating your own or co-creating your own, it's right? And, and redefine, that's right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, 100%, and so that's what, that's what I'm learning from data feminism is that also there are a lot of communities like indigenous communities, Latin America, even though the Mongols were not really loved by most people in history because they did some bad stuff, but um, you know, the Mongols had an oral tradition. And so you could also argue were Mongols so bad or they didn't write things down. So the writing about them is by other people. Mm. Right. I went to an all girls school. We used to joke that it's history, his story written by men. Mm -hmm. Right. So you got to be at the table. You got to be writing. You've got to be publishing. You've got to be doing this beyond podcasts or writing, you know, doing your own podcast. You've got to be creating and, and, you know, in a world now with chat GPT, the transcript of this might be taken by chat GPT to, you know, incorporate an answer. Right. So there, um, I'm not, you know, I, I would critique personal responsibility a little bit because I think too often it is used as a justification to deny what is systemic. But I would also say that there is some aspect, like going back to how the intro was, that you do make choices at these intersections and you do have some personal control. So what can you do to ensure that your identity is being measured or described in the right way? Right? I mean, I've worked in insurance and typically most doctors hate other doctors who worked in insurance because you're the bad guy. But part of the reason I worked in insurance was that we were going towards value-based care and somebody was defining quality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be at that table defining quality. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be somebody who was at the table. I've been in compliance. I've done policing of fellow doctors, right? And I, But I wanted to be the person who's like, um, my community has been policed. So just because your quote gut feeling is that XYZ is right or wrong, does not make it right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the data. Let's be logical. Let's have rational compassion. You know, sometimes the people who end up in compliance spaces have been personally harmed and they want to be the police, right? But now you're again, trauma driven. And again, not to be ableist, I think we must be trauma informed but we also have to be honest with ourselves when it is trauma that is driving our quote gut feeling. And in fact, like, you know, when I've uh, learned about when I've been trained in mindfulness, um, they actually teach you not to say gut feeling because as actually as a pediatrician, it makes sense when a child is nervous or getting bullied in school, where does it show up? They have a, t they have a tummy ache. I don't want to go to school. I have a tummy ache. Drill down, turns out there's a bully at school, right? 
um, you know, you, 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 so your gut feeling is actually probably more your limbic system, your so-called lizard brain as it's called. Mm -hmm. And so rather than respond to your gut feeling, use deep intuition mm -hmm. and intuition is a combination of your lived experience and data with a, with a, you know, dose of humility. So going back to the, you know, uh, data feminism, one of the things it talks about is using qualitative data, which is recording stories, mm -hmm. right? So then you capture the stories that women tell to each other, that indigenous people tell to each other, it gets lost, right? Because too often the data that we refer to are, are, again, I'm not trying to, you know, call anybody out, but just state a reality is created by white men, right? And, and it's not out of malice. It's just how it has been right for whatever reason you could read guns germs and steel and get to some reasons as to why that is but and not out of malice but if i again like before i realized i had endometriosis and and fibroids i lived with it for years and actually i was one of those people who didn't have severe menstrual pain if somebody was like oh you know menstruation is a real problem it causes people to like i probably been like Maybe you just need to toughen up a bit, right? I mean, I might have been one of those women because I didn't experience it. I'm like, I'm a woman. Doesn't affect me, right? And so that's where we can't overcenter on ourselves. We have to have diversity at the table and like diversity that checks off multiple things. So I might check off the box of woman and minority or Muslim. But me, until I actually stopped, I, I addressed the internalized ableism within myself, where I was suppressing my own feelings and just powering through um, and denying that I was in pain or having problems, which is rewarded in American culture, which is rewarded as a child of immigrants. I mean, literally in one, um, one day at the hospital, a nurse said to me, she's like, oh, you're one of the good ones. You follow the rules, not like those people who come here for a handout. Hmm. You know, um, and so like, so, right, and, and like, what would be a handout, by the way, mm -hmm. if I were feeling ill and I took a sick day and, and, you know, she's let me know that she was descended from people who fought in the civil, you know, the revolutionary war, you know, so, so she's letting me know that she belongs. She's a gatekeeper of my validity and I need to be a so-called good one. <laughs> before I'm allowed in her space. And, and I mean, I, this is not, I mean, I'm not hierarchical, but I mean, I, re, I'm just, reality is that the language of medicine, it might be wrong, maybe we need to change it. The language of medicine is that as a doctor, I write so-called orders, right? Which is kind of militaristic language. And so if a child is ha having her, the blood pressure drop or going into anaphylactic reaction, I need nurses around me to respond to me the same way they would respond to Doc Brown and not be assessing whether I'm a good one, good enough for them to respond to me because they're assessing me and my identity and my belonging and my validity as a doctor in a hospital is a danger to my patients, to mm -hmm. our patients, not just my patient. To humanity. Mm -hmm. It's a danger to humanity. Yeah. It's yeah. a danger to humanity. And I'm not practicing at, at this time. And I'm, you know, looking and I'll be honest, th th these kinds of seemingly innocent comments are not innocent. 
Yeah, this has been such, such a rich discussion. We could practically have a master class based on what, <laughs> what we've covered here today. Mm -hmm. And we're really grateful to you for spending so much time with us, uh, Dr. Nahal. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us at the intersection today. If you want to see all of our episodes, they're available at unlikelyintersection.com or on our YouTube channel, Unlikely Intersections. Uh, as well as on Facebook, where this aired live uh, this morning. I'm at LinkedIn, Doc Philip Brown. Terry? You can find me, Terry Jackson, Ph.D., on LinkedIn, as well as on Facebook. And again, thank you so very much for going into some of the weeds that needed to be gone into today. Absolutely. In your conversation, we thank you so very much. And where yes, can we I find you? Where can we work in our I'm, listeners? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and you can probably see my name. Umbery, it will be on the thing. Um, but I do actually just want to leave. Let's end on a positive note because you know I, I'd like to like always have the sticker, the popsicle as a. <laughs> as a <laughs> so I, I think at the I think that there's a lot of unconscious things that we do, and to map back to what you said at the beginning, we have intersections every day. So let's just be, let's lean into growth mindset. Let's be a little bit more intentional, conscious, and, you know, co-create, as you said, right? So think about all of those opportunities and, um, and, and yeah, to, to, to think about humanity and the beautiful diversity within humanity. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you again. Thank you.